Evening, everybody. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about how you pass your day. What are you doing? (laughs) Yes, you may, at this point in the retreat, you may be asking yourself that very question. Like, along the lines of, what was I thinking? I, I can remember when I thought this would be a great idea, and, hmm... Well, you know, things change. So if uh, you find yourself in that current dimension, don't worry about it too much. It's likely to move through, especially if you attend wisely to it. So most of the time when we're on retreat, we tend to really focus on the formal sitting periods. So you've been getting, in the morning, you've been getting detailed and progressive instructions that uh, start with uh, the body and with breath. And uh, day by day, uh, other things have been spoken to or pointed out, and uh, different things have um, been brought forward as things that you could attend to or things that you could notice, particular Um, Things like what Greg was talking about last night when he was talking about working with uh, the body in order to establish mindfulness. And he was pointing in particular to uh, seeing uh, the elements in our subjective experience of the body and how that's one way that you can practice with the first uh, establishment or foundation of mindfulness. And then this morning at the meditation instructions, Rebecca was talking about how you could establish mindfulness with thoughts. That it was actually possible to turn attention towards thought in real time and take it as a a meditation object, which is a practicing of uh, mindfulness using the mind door, the third establishment of mindfulness. And of course, it's important that you get these particular downloads of instructions because there are many different ways that one can meditate or try to meditate or go about meditating. Uh, But if you don't have some basic understanding up front about how to Uh, work with your attentional capacity, you're not going to get very far along with it because Mm -hmm. the mind's habits of just wandering all over and of perceiving things often in association with the the distortion of the hindrances is very strong. So we really benefit from this type of specificity and we Mm -hmm. talk in very specific ways about the sitting practice in particular. And then we go into more detail in particular areas, like we might give you a close-up of how to to work with each hindrance, or we might give you a close-up on how to work with pain in the body. There'll be a conversation in a particular set of instructions that encompasses that area of practice. And what we're offering you then is um, a kind of three-stage process 
for your own development of some mastery, starting with uh, first receiving and ingesting the instructions, you know, hear it, literally hearing them, and these, and uh, and then remembering them and digesting their meaning and uh, applying them. And these are the basic building blocks of competency, first to receive and uh, take in the instructions, and then to remember them and, and uh, digest them and make them your own. This is the live attempt to actually uh, do what the teacher has been pointing to when they offer the instructions. And then the third step of this is where you get um, the mind is getting an idea of what's going on here and it begins to be able to um, assimilate these in the mind stream to the extent where they've actually become wholesome habits of mind and that the mind now meets uh, experience in a way that sustains mindfulness. And in that way, the meditation instructions become just the way our body-mind system relates to things when it sits down to practice. But of course, to learn this takes a lot of persistence and application and patience and faith too, you know, enough faith in ourselves and in the practice to be able to to make the, the effort to learn how to do this. And of course, this territory takes us through many hills and valleys and... Um, you know, times where we feel like, okay, I'm getting it now. I'm okay. I'm, I've got an idea what's going on here. All right, I'm, I'm getting this down. And then, of course, you could turn around, and you know, one or two sits later, you walk in the hall, and it's like, where's my tools? Where's my tools? You know, <laughs> where's the breath? Where's the breath? What was that again? Uh, and it, it, it seems to be unavailable. So this is a pointing to the, the gradual uh, nature of the process. Then, of course, on retreat, walking meditation instructions are are also given. Um, And often we we take um, walking practice in as uh, a secondary thing, uh, and it feels like it's being instructed in an offhanded or secondary way, or maybe that's just how we're looking at it and practicing it. But walking practice is actually co-equal to sitting. It has the same value for you in your your cultivation. So if you're either inclined towards walking or if you commit yourselves uh, to developing a walking practice, uh, there's the possibility of seeing tremendous rewards from that investment of... uh, application. The Buddha actually says that one of the ways to check out whether a practice center is a, a serious uh, place is to look at the, the walking paths. Then he says if the walking paths are well-worn, it's a, a good sign. Well, you know, we don't have um, grooves in the oak floor out here in this entryway uh, which must be a testimony to the quality of the oak. 
But it seems to me, given the, the number of times people have walked back and forth across that floor, you know, there should be uh, grooves three feet deep in it. So the Buddha says this about walking too. He says that concentration developed while walking can last a long time. Uh, And in fact, the mind can sometimes get more concentrated when walking than it actually does in sitting. And of course, when the mind starts to experience wholesome concentration in the walking, then it starts to like the walking meditation, which helps support a more... uh, durable connection to the to it all and that's a really fortunate thing because walking uh, with our eyes open is something that we do a lot more of in daily life than sitting with our eyes closed trying to feel the breath right that's usually like a one or two time a day uh, uh, practice period activity and yet we, we, we walk uh, a number of times during the course of a day, whether recreationally or to get someplace or just to uh, mobilize ourselves to, to get from the, the kitchen to the, to the office, to the bathroom, to the bedroom. Um, so it has the potentiality there for being uh, a very grounding, useful place where mindfulness can be sustained in daily life. So we've got the sitting practice and we've got the walking practice. And while we're on retreat and practicing intensively, if you add those two things together, they add up to a considerable number of hours every day. So who's done the math? I know you have. <laughs> you've taken those 45-minute periods and you've added them together and you've made the 60-minute adjustments. So hours a day you practice, but not all hours of the day. So even uh, when sleeping time is deducted, there are hours a day where you're not doing formal practice. Now, right now you might be going, thank God. Thank God, you know, my head would blow off if I you know, had to do one more even half hour thing. But, so there are hours, of day, hours left every day. So the question is, how do you hold or relate to those hours what practice possibilities do they actually hold? So here's some possible responses that yogis might have to gaps in formal practice time. So uh, it's time off, kind of like vacation time, like wee, you know, it's like wee, you get time around lunch, wee. Or, uh, you know, it's an op- some people might think, well, okay, it's, it's a window. This is an opportunity to uh, rebalance energy and effort. You know, like maybe take a run or a, a walk to rouse energy or to blow off excess energy. Or, you know, maybe if you're really tired or burned out, to take a nap. 
Or maybe you use these times as a self-care window. You know, this is when you're going to take a shower or you're going to do some yoga or maybe you're going to, you know, hand wash your socks or something like that. Or you could uh, consider it, it's a space out completely hindrance invitation date. (laughs) Okay, so... Is there a way that we can use the time wisely to actually support and extend our practice uh, into the off hours without turning everything into unpleasant and unfruitful over-efforting? And I really want to acknowledge that dimension of it because very often in <clears throat> in practice, of course, we're committing ourselves and, you know, we're doing the best that we can. We're really, you know, we're working it as best we can. Sometimes we're working it even further than uh, uh, would be skillful, but, you know, we're trying really hard. And I know sometimes people have the experience, uh, you know, walking down the hall to their yogi room, you open the door, you step in, and you go, God! (laughs) God! You just throw yourself down (laughs) the bed or something, right? It's like, thank God, you know? It's like, let it all go, because you've been holding it kind of (laughs) tight. So, you know, you don't want to be holding it all tight, especially holding it tight a lot. So just to acknowledge, you know, we're not looking for, like, tight, 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 tighter when we're talking about practicing in uh, continuity in these interim periods. So, but if there was a way that you could use the time wisely to actually support and extend your practice without turning everything unpleasant and unfruitful and engaging in over-efforting, that would be a really good thing. And why, you may ask, would that be a really good thing? Well, I just happen to have a list. So here's why I think continuity is important. Mindfulness itself is a cause for the arising of future moments of mindfulness. So if you've got a thread going a thread of mindfulness, you're getting support from the presence of that mindfulness in terms of being able to continue that run of sati. Now, adversely, when mindfulness collapses, uh, the door to condition states of delusions open and hindrances arise. So one of, one of the understandings about sati, about mindfulness, is that it accompanies every wholesome state, which suggests that in the absence of sati, unwholesome states uh, can easily arise and proliferate. So if there's a mindfulness vacuum, these kinds of things can... Uh, rather easily and quickly become what's happening. But if mindfulness is absent, we don't necessarily notice the presence of these hindrances, so it's easy for them to proliferate and get stronger. 
Then if you've got a strong hindrance going, it's more difficult to reestablish mindfulness, let alone concentration, right? So it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, if you've made, made the effort to climb the mountain and now you're there, now you're in, in mindfulness land, um, you really want to think two, two or three times before you choose to, you know, go down the mountain again and then have to go climb all the way back up to get to where you were when you left off. So once you've made the effort to establish mindfulness in the formal sittings and walkings, it's wiser and more functional to keep the thread going no matter what else you're doing. And, you know, there's a common way in which people practice, and they often practice this way because they're trying really hard and then the mind gets tight and um, they get tired. Um, And then they decide, okay... I'm just going to like bag it for now. Now sometimes that can be skillful. Sometimes that's something that your teacher would actually tell you to do. But there's a, a middle way of practicing where the mind is not, not so tight. It's committed, it's present. But it isn't engaging in this like, try really hard, try really hard, try really hard, get completely burned out, got to stop, got to stop, collapse. So stop-and-go practice is actually um, the most difficult way, and it requires more effort and more energy for less outcome than just chugging away and maintaining mindfulness. So therefore, you should consider carefully how you can sustain practice during the interim periods. And how you work with this is really... Uh, a creative function for you to investigate individually because there's no common set of instructions that you know the teacher can give you in the same way that they would give you instructions about what to attend to when you're sitting down initially and establishing uh, connectivity with your anchor So this is you out having your own individual voyages away from the meditation hall and away from the the walking period, which is a lot like describing normal daily life, right? When you're away from the the walking periods and away from the formal sitting periods and you're just going about your business. So you can see the potentiality of the, uh, um, the crossover value of some of these these ways of looking at your interim experience and practicing with it. So the goal is to uh, keep mindfulness going in a way that supports balance of mind and adds to the whole system energy and willingness to practice, right? So it's actually uh, supporting you in a virtuous spiral in relationship to mindfulness, energy, and willingness. And uh, there are particular teachers that really uh, emphasize uh, this perspective that practice and learning that flows from it can happen outside of formal practice periods. And of course, uh, Sayadaw Teshaniya's 
uh, a well-known uh, teacher um, who has this uh, view and embeds it in uh, his formal teachings. And in his autobiography, he describes how his awakening journey began in daily life as a layperson by practicing uh, with regular kinds of things like the experience of working with a working in a market where he was uh, selling textile goods and what that was was like to practice there in the middle of the flow of doing other things in this busy place. So here we've got these hours that we can use but we're still in a secluded and supported environment, right? We're not in the middle of a, a busy market with a lot of people coming up being customers and a lot of noise and all the rest of that. So we've got supportive conditions for this, this exploration of how to work. So let's take a look at the opportunities there are to sustain mindfulness in the schedule here. And this is the process of learning to see the Dharma and things other than how it's instructed in the hall. And those of you who know the, the teaching of the seven factors of awakening recognize that investigation or dhamma vichaya is the second factor of awakening. And when this factor is really strong, the practice can become uh, very awake and self-illuminating. And this can happen on and off the cushion. So let's just walk ourselves through the course of a day and I'll point out some opportunities for you. So the first is waking up. Waking up. So what is the mood upon wakening? (laughs) Okay. So I can see the ones who aren't morning people. Uh, So moods are actually mind states, right? Which is third foundation practice, you know? What's the, what's the morning energy level? Not just generically, but in real time. You can notice these things in real time in the morning. What's your energy level? What's your physical energy level? And what's your mental energy level? Is the body kind of, yeah. And the mind is like, uh? <laughs> or is the body like, uh? But the mind is like, okay, we're going to wake up. We're going to do it. Eh? What's the attitude towards uh, the practice day when you think of it? When you ha- that first co- thought comes and it's like, another, another day of practice. <laughs> <laughs> or may it's, maybe it's like, another day of practice. <laughs> it's like, oh God, another day of practice. Yeah? Or maybe the mind's all bright and chirpy. It's like another day of practice. So it's like not like a right answer here. It's just to notice. So as you head towards the bathroom, are you embodied? You know, do you, do you uh, feel your hands on the door as you open and close it? Um, as you dress, make the bed, brush your teeth and all that stuff, do you feel the sensations of doing so? 
if the awareness is not with the body, where is it? You know, is it still kind of like in the dream that <laughs> you were only halfway through when you woke up? Or are you still like kind of asleep? Okay, now we've gotten ourselves dressed. So heading for the med hall. This could be the first sit or could be actually be any sit of the day. So what's present in the mind as you head for the sitting? Is it happiness? Is it sleepiness? Is it resistance? Is it interest? Is it like excitement? Is it dread? You know, I'm kind of giving you the polarities, but you know, just like what is it when you're walking in? Do you connect with the body sensations as you're walking down the hall or walking uh, through the walking space here, coming up the stairs in the back? Is that an embodied kind uh, of experience? Is there mindfulness present with it? Awareness of others. As you become aware of other yogis, what's your reaction? So do you want them to go away? You know, do you worry about them? Are you nannying them? Uh, Do you notice some people more than others? Do you want to look to see if somebody in particular is here? Either uh, because you're uh, looking forward to that or you're dreading that? You know, is there aversion or craving or goodwill or compassion, a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling isolated? And is there uh, visible Vedana in regard to these experiences? Okay, breakfast. We're at the eating part now. All right. So, how many of you have done the raisin meditation? Okay. The raisin meditation. Okay. So 1980s, I think. (laughs) But nevertheless. Okay. So this is sometimes offered on retreats to help direct mindfulness to eating and which is often one of the most mindless of activities, is it not? You ever have the experience of uh, having a, having eaten a meal and at some point afterwards you realize that you had absolutely no awareness whatsoever in the whole process of like getting the food, you know, cutting it up, forking it in, chewing it, swallowing it and like the whole thing is over and like you were never there (laughs) this is this is an area of huge unconsciousness for for most of us at least in part because it's instinctual behavior right so but even before you get to the eating part there's plenty to know mindfully related to meals. So, first of all, you've got the standing and waiting to go through the line. That's kind of an interesting little 
school of fish activity there, isn't it? Everybody kind of like migrates, uh, for, you know, like the the more uh, observant people have figured out that the middle line moves twice as fast as the two side lines. Oh no, I've given away the secret. But uh, but you're standing there, right? You're standing there. You're practicing one of the four postures that the Buddha talks about, standing, sitting, walking, and lying down. So you can stand, standing meditation. Sensations of hunger, which is a body experience, of course. What is that like to be hungry? A lot of people in the world are, and not just because they haven't eaten since breakfast. But what, what is that subjective experience of hunger? Then there's what's going on in the mind, the desire to eat or not to eat. Oh, I still feel, feel full from breakfast. Yeah, but I should eat something. But I don't like what they have here. I want a cheeseburger. So, <laughs> wanting or not wanting what's offered. So, preferences. Preferences. Then you've got the, also have the opportunity to practice with smell. There are six sense doors. One of them is uh, the nose door. I don't know, that sounds a little weird. Doesn't sound like, like a garage door or something, but bay opening, but... Okay, so smell is really an interesting sense because this one also is very primal. And there's, um, it's very often linked to emotion. So what is it exactly to smell? You know, you, you can notice change, for instance, in the sensations of a breath. Do an experiment. If you're practicing with the sense of smell while you're standing there, see if it's a steady state experience or does it have variations as um, this experience of standing and waiting for your meal goes on. You know, are there uh, associations that arise in the, the mind? You know, when you smell borscht, do you think of grandma? You know, is there like a picture of grandma and her babushka and she's putting it, you know, on the table and you got the sour cream and she's... Maybe that's my grandma. Then the whole set of physical sensations involved in putting food on plates, picking up silverware, walking through the line on the right. A lot of this, a lot of fine motor stuff is going on here, right? And the Vedana, which arises as you consider uh, each available object and make a selection. That's interesting to notice too, right? Chickpeas, no. Olives, yeah. It's like, oh, last of the last of the tomatoes, yeah. Hmm, sprouts, nah. Oh, 
spicy potato salad. Oh, yeah. This is all, all coming as a consequence of primarily eye contact and the perception of what these particular things are and the arising perhaps of memories of how they, they taste. Those memories have particular Vedana and, you can, and then you can see there arises the impulse to take or not to take. But you've got to kind of pep it up. <laughs> you know, you can't be... <laughs> Too much time with the peas, you know. <laughs> you got to keep the line moving. But nevertheless, you know, just just see what you can notice. So then you get your stuff. You take it to your place. I won't even get into the social social dimensions of, you know, which table you you sit at and all of that. I'll bring back memories of high school. So um, the sense of taste also one of the sense doors. So to get to the taste, you've got the process of uh, chewing. So the mandibles are employed here and the tongue is kind of moving food around in the mouth. Check out and see how long taste lasts with a particular bite of food. Do you think it's a steady state experience like as soon as you pop it in your mouth you get like peak taste and then it keeps that way until you, you know, it goes down the hatch? Investigate what that is, right? Like at what point do you actually uh, taste the food? And then as you chew it, what happens to the taste as you continue to chew it before you swallow it? So you don't need to do this with every bite or anything, but these are examples of investigations that you can make yourself, which are interesting in and of themselves, and which can actually help sustain and strengthen your mindfulness. And um, when fullness arises, take a look at this issue of uh, satiation, kind of like when you know you've had enough. This is a very interesting one, too. How do, how do you know when you've had enough to eat? So there's the, the body sensation of satiation but often we make the decision that we've had enough when when how would you describe it sometimes we make that decision is made out of ideas of how much we should eat or intentions about what we're doing in eating like I don't you don't want to feel sleepy or I don't want to, you know, uh, lose weight or I don't want to gain weight. Uh, Sometimes, notice sometimes the impulse to continue to to eat, even though we may subjectively feel full. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? The difference, how there can sometimes be a difference between the, the wanting to consume and, uh, the body saying that's enough. 
but the wanting can, can still be there, right? Especially if it's been a pleasant, that's uh, a, a preferred or pleasant consumption item. Or sometimes if there's an emotional state that's difficult or unpleasant, sometimes that is a cause and condition for us to want to continue to, you know, um, re- receive or experience something pleasant as a way of covering up that state. So there's no judgment here in any of this. It's just notice. There's a lot, um, a lot to be seen with eating. And then waiting in line to scrape and wash dishes and the sensations of doing that. You know, seeing the water with, you know, that's turned pink and uh, the floating <laughs> lettuce leaves. <laughs> you know, it doesn't look too appealing. You know, those feelings that, that might come up in response to that, um, the unpleasant Vedana stimulated by that, or maybe that's just me. So so then getting to the, uh, the mother load of off-the-cushion practice, which is the yogi job, the yogi job. Um, those of you who have been seeing me may have noticed that I tend to ask you about your yogi job. And one of the reasons that I do that is because so much happens during the yogi job. Uh, And so much can be seen if you attend there. So you may have heard the yogi job referred to as work meditation. It's possible. It's possible. Although I have to say, you know, every time I hear that, I, I have this thought, that's a little manipulative. But anyway, <laughs> but it is. It is a potential meditation. So if mindfulness is present there, there can be a significant opening and understanding while working. And often people's dominant conditioning will really show itself there. So let's start with the job that you have. Most of you have yogi yogi jobs. You might not, but most of you do. So turning your reflection internally now. Do you experience your job overall as a pleasant unpleasant or more or less neutral. All right. So that doesn't, of course, necessarily mean that every moment of your yogi job is pleasant or unpleasant or more or less neutral. Because there's a lot that can go on in the course of doing the yogi job. So let's take a look at uh, some questions about yogi jobs. Do you feel resistant to what you've been assigned? Uh, Did you scheme to get a particular job because you like it? Or... um, how do you go about doing it? Do you do kind of like the minimal that's actually required to get the job done? 
Or is your conditioning more like to take emotional responsibility for stuff that isn't yours? (laughs) So, do you want to supervise or correct others? Right? Like, tell them to get with it, you know? (laughs) They're they're substandard and they're scrubbing or, you know, whatever. So what's the attitude of mind with which you approach the job? You know, are you relaxed? Are you tense? Of course, this is changing all the time. Uh, Hurried, uh, inattentive, uh, checked out, perfectionistic. Um, When you're doing the job, are you framing this like this is outside of practice? This is something that you just got to do every day, but it really doesn't have any relationship to what's going on here, any bearing on what goes on in the sitting and walking periods. So often mental tendencies reveal themselves in yogi jobs. So I'll I'll tell you one of my experiences. The first 10-day retreat I went to was... Uh, at this um, retreat center that was typical of the retreat centers of the time before we, you know, got more bougie. (laughs) But it was kind of like a little broken down, you know. Uh, So when the yogis came in, they always, uh, to help them... uh, integrate into the retreat there is always a big long list of jobs so one of the the jobs that they wanted people to do was they they had these old metal bed frames that were all rusted and so they wanted to repaint the metal bed frames but in order to do that the right way they had to be hand sanded to remove the rust right so this was our this was our mission. This was our task. And there there's a group of maybe about six people, uh, and I was one of them that were working together in this relatively small cabin with these old rusty ass bed frames and these little pieces of steel wool. And you know, so we're like not talking because you know we're in silence at this point. You know, scrape and scrape and scrape. And scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape, <laughs> you know, and it's very detailed kind of work. And as we proceeded with this, I noticed that one or two of my companions were definitely careless. <laughs> so they were not doing a good job. They were, you know, like, when they got to these junctures with the slats and things, they were just like, and then it was like good enough for them. So they weren't really, like, getting getting it down. They weren't doing it properly. (laughs) So it was very interesting, like, to to watch my own mind as as this proceeded and as I, you know, with... uh, a diligence and meticulousness was doing my version of this while uh, my mind was also watching what these other two were doing and 
I got really mad at him. I felt a lot of irritation and a lot of annoyance because they were just such slackers. <laughs> you know? And I kind of like wanted to intervene and, you know, like show them how to do it and, you know, get them to step up to standards and stuff. And that's, that's when I realized, okay, I've been an executive director too long. <laughs> Right? Like, I am not supervising here. This is like non applicable. But I saw my own conditioning and just very high, re- high relief. And at that point, it became amusing. But it's not uncommon to see your own conditioning, your own stuff in quite uh, vivid detail. Uh, because you've got the mindfulness that you've gathered in the rest of the uh, formal practice periods that's with you there that really illuminates what's happening in real time in a way that in your your daily life or your regular world isn't available to you. So there's a lot of learning that's possible. So we talked about the Vedan of the job. Does strong Vedana... Uh, arise primarily in response to things that are physical or things that are mental? Does it change as you work? So uh, one time I was practicing uh, here at, uh, at the Forest Refuge and I got the job of cleaning the bathrooms and the showers, like the whole second floor of the of the forest refuge all the showers and all the bathrooms and the laundry room and the hallway and the and I think that about covered it but that that was like plenty so and I can I can remember just like getting this job and like feeling resistance at least in part because I have a really good sense of smell I thought oh god it's like oh okay <laughs> this is going to be tough so, you know, the thought of doing it was extremely unpleasant. But the actual doing of it was only intermittently unpleasant, which is, was a very interesting learning, that the mind was uh, resistant to the idea of it, to the imagining of how it was going to be. But what, when it actually sustained mindfulness into the actual doing of the task, the unpleasantness was there in only intermittently and the resistance uh, actually dissolved quite quickly. And at, at certain points, I actually felt happy at the thought of people using a clean bathroom because everybody likes a clean bathroom, right? It's like, okay, clean potty chairs for everybody. You know, bodhisattva. <laughs> so, you know... Things can change. Things can change. You know, if we're frozen just in our first reaction to things, instead of continuing to be present with it as we go along, we might miss that point. We're not um, connected enough to to be getting fresh updates about what that situation is that we're actually uh, engaged with. 
you could take a look at mind states that arise as you as you were. You know, is it happiness? Is it boredom? Is it resentment? Is it relief? Is it meta? Is it letting go? I I can remember one uh, yogi friend telling me this story, and and this was a, a person. Um, uh, who, who was raised without um, a lot of money in a family where the parents worked as laborers. And when she was on a retreat, she wound up getting uh, a job where she was mopping floors, right? Which for her brought up associations about, okay, uh, I'm the janitor, right? I'm the like the low-wage, low-status laborer now. I'm doing the the jobs, you know, that other people don't want to do. You know, this all came up for her uh, in a flood. And she noticed that, like, uh, when people would, like, walk through the area where she was trying to work, uh, even though she had the the signs out, that it would make her so angry. Rage would really arise, uh, really arise in the mind. And she, she recognized that, okay, this is, this is conditions, this is causes and conditions. You know, my, my mind uh, is pro, uh, proliferating these associations uh, between this situation and uh, my family history and uh, my social location and, and all the rest of it. And she said it became a, actually a very freeing experience for her because under that circumstance she could actually like stop for a period of time, turn her attention and turn her awareness towards the experience that she was having and practice directly, directly with it. And over time obtain a feeling of more freedom, more openness, more liberation in, in re- response to that particular arising So, you know, mana, self-view, this comes up in relationship to work. You know, this tendency of mind to compare oneself as better than, less than, or as good as others is very uh, common and can be really painful. You know, you can see mana come up in your yogi job. Say you're a, a veggie chopper. You know, do you have the experience of, I should be able to chop at least as fast as these other dudes, and maybe better? Furthermore, my chops... Are a lot more regular. Look at that. You know, she's got one big one. She's got one little one. It's like, how are the cooks gonna? How are the cooks gonna work with that? You know, <laughs> competitive pot washing, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we're human. Human beings that have this built-in tendency to to compare. It's very interesting and, and useful to actually uh, see it, to be able to take it as a, an object instead of be so driven by it. And then we've got the midday break. You know, what, what you decide to do then, um, you know, when you ta- decide to take a rest or maybe you decide to take a walk or maybe you go back in the hall if you're feeling very... Uh, uh, energized, maybe you take a shower, do other activities, the shower, the shower, the bath, the final frontier of mindfulness. 
at least it was it was for me. I, I when I first came here and did this retreat, you know, they did the progressive instructions. They would gr- like gradually fill in the details about practice opportunities that were. Uh, uh, not in the formal sitting periods, and so they would gradually add elements. And I can remember, like the last thing they added was, and you know, da da da, you can you can carry mindfulness uh, when you're bathing, when you're having your shower, you can, you know, be present with that experience. And I, my mind was just like, no, no. This is like the last space out zone. You know, can I just like? Face out there, yeah. And back in those days, you could use scented products too. So it was, you know, a regular festival in there. You know, with your, you know, patchouli soap and your, you know, fragrant shampoo and your your luscious, you know, lotions and everything. But anyway, the shower, the bath, the bath. And then the last area that, that I'll actually mention is um, attention uh, to issues related to uh, keeping the container. And this also is a very interesting area. So when one becomes aware that you want to act at variance with the retreat practice agreement, what's actually going on there? So, you know, if you start thinking about, oh, leaving a note for another yogi or uh, playing around on the cell phone or something, you know, what are the mind states that are there? Are they wholesome or not? What, what hindrances uh, might be there? What, what body states are you noticing? What are the thoughts that are accompanying the impulse, the, the wants, the, de- the desires or the aversions? So there's a lot there. There's a lot there. If you can incline your mind to be, to be interested uh, in some of these things, that will really be a, a major support for you in being able to carry this thread uh, of mindful awareness in a more unbroken way. And that will uh, fuel your practice on and off the cushion. It can really help build momentum for your mindfulness and for your concentration. And the other thing that it does is it really starts to break down this view that the real thing is on the cushion and only on the cushion. Working in this particular space extends practice into all of life, whether you're at IMS or not. So sometimes at the end of the retreats, people ask, well, how do I carry this into daily life? So working in these interim periods are giving you an example to, to practice in that kind of way, a way that would be transferable and beneficial for you uh, after. So pick a few areas for yourself and see. May the practice that we've done here together by offering and 
hearing the Dhamma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings.